0: they wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ding ling ling city desk pull the press, pull the press, extra, extra read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh newspeckermen meets such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. This would be the media project. That is a half hour of commentary and analysis on the news media events of recent days, and we hope you will join us for the conversation. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union, here with the venerable Alan Chartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. Venerable means old? Yes. I mean, with the demise of Alex Trebek, who's more venerable (laughs) in the media world? Judy Patrick is here, Vice President of the New York Press Association, longtime editor of the Daily Gazette prior to that, and investigative journalist Rosemary Armayo and uh, Professor U. Albany, and many hats that Rosemary has worn over the years. Anyway, Alan, I was saying nice things about you. I meant that, uh, of course, as a compliment, not just saying that you're.
1: No, I, I knew older that. I, I am. I'm <laughs> older than you are? I didn't know that. Uh, no, I am a lot older than you. <laughs>
0: Here's the question that I'd like to start off with this week, if we could. We'll go to you first, Alan, for a thought on whether the events of recent days and that's, that's uh, immediately ahead, the insurrection at the Capitol, the inauguration of the new president, whether all of this is going to change the media ecosystem in which we've, we're operating. What is going to make a difference for the news media as a result of the changes from Trump world to the world that we're going to be seeing ahead? You
1: have any thoughts on that? Well, I do. Rex, the louses, the miscreants who went up to the Capitol and tried to take it over under the instructions, clearly, of the President of the United States, really not only had targeted other Congress people, people in the Democratic Party, but they also were targeting the press. I mean, the one thing that Donald Trump has done from the beginning is to indicate the press is the enemy of the people. And here these people come up. And I know that a lot of these reporters, the AP, for example, had all of its equipment trashed by these jerks. So the press gets folded into this. The way that they react to it is something that my colleague Rosemary probably has some thinking on. Don't you, Rosemary?
2: I do, of course. I think ah. that what happens Wednesday, January 6th shows that reporting in America has gotten very dangerous, almost as dangerous, I would say, as reporting overseas. I certainly saw things in Washington that I never saw in war capitals where I have worked. And that means that reporters, I think, will be more careful. They're going to wear more protective gear. Reporters are out buying flak jackets and things like that. I think their equipment made them targets. And so you're going to see more of a reliance on covert and secret and smaller miniature equipment. And I think that whenever there's danger, there's less coverage. It's dangerous for reporters now to cover protests with the potential to turn into what happened at the Capitol. So will they be there? The number one lesson we always teach journalists is your life is more important than any story. So I think naturally we're going to see less coverage, and that's poor for everybody. I think you're going to see more cross-training, reporters that were at the Capitol on January 6th were political reporters, and they ended up covering breaking news and police reports. That's not stuff that they do normally. And I think that that pretends that you have to have much more training. You also have to have video. Uh, The reporters who were there, who were shooting with their cameras, that film, that video is important now, both to the American people who want to know and to prosecutors. I think that you're also going to see a lot more commentary and pointed point of view in reporting. You cannot like Katie tour and Chuck Todd watch a debate in Congress that turns into a mob scene without saying, Oh my God, this is horrible. What's going on. This never happened before. All those sorts of things that were definitely expressions of disapproval. Objectivity is becomes, I I never thought it was a great idea, but it becomes less and less possible to do that now. And finally, I think that the day when politicians, and reporters pretended not to be adversaries is over. I don't think you're going to see correspondence dinners, for example. I don't think you're going to see friendly gatherings and off-the-record secret meetings. I think that the relationship between the free press and the politicians will now be more openly provocative.
0: Judy, your uh, top-line feelings on this?
3: You know, from that day, it was fairly easy for some reporters to just kind of slip their press pass underneath their coat and continue to, you know, work the crowd and the very dangerous crowd. I felt incredibly worried for the people with the big cameras because they were targets. And the idea that as is tradition, they had put a lot of the uh, network news coverage, camera crews in a pen, you know, surrounded by this flimsy cage that quickly got knocked down and they quickly got attacked. I'm still seeing on social media, attacks on the press, the vilifying the press is continuing. There's some hopeful news, you know, President-elect Biden is saying that one of the things he made a point of, of saying that he's going to do special investigation into these attacks on the press. Things aren't going to change dramatically going forward. The Biden administration is going to be a lot more of a challenge to cover because they're going to go back to some normal ways of presenting the news and it's not going to be so outrageous as the Trump administration has been. And that's a good thing.
0: That's an interesting point. It's been um, all laid out there for the reporters with Donald Trump tweeting constantly. It was pretty easy for reporters to simply report on that and let it go. The Biden administration is going to be a lot more buttoned down. Buttoned up, whichever way buttons go, and making reporting skills, digging things out, more important.
1: But one thing, real fast, and that is that the new press secretary has said, You're going to have a daily briefing again, and I'm going to be answering questions. So that's a big difference from what we've seen.
0: That's good, but what that is is the daily feed trough at the White House, and real reporting begins with that and goes on. I I mean, I think it's terrific that they're going to be accessible, supposedly, and actually answer questions from reporters. One of the major benefits of that is for the administration. It defines what the administration policy is instead of just having officials wander about saying, well, what's the White House really want, as big as the federal bureaucracy is. The presidential press conferences and briefings are as important to function for government as for the media. because. Real Reporting begins at the step beyond what you 're fed, but still uh, this is all good you know in in rosemary 's um, analysis of the number of things that are changing, one of the things that uh, she noted there was this uh, the question about objectivity the the more uh, speaking of Katie Tour and, and Chuck Todd on NBC, for example, putting more opinion in and that is a question that I think is is significant for our voice when Reporting the news requires a more distance from neutrality. Um, there is some danger in this, isn't there? Because as we get more uh, – as, as reporters put more of themselves into the stories, uh, we are moving away from that notion that we can be the neutral observers. And We've talked about this on this program, but I think we are getting much further into this than we ever could have imagined ourselves being,
1: Right. Look, this president is the greatest danger that this constitutional Republican democracy has ever had. And all kinds of decisions have to be made. You have to get them off Twitter. And they're doing all of that stuff. Some people say it's not fair. But far less fair would be having the United States government become a fascist enterprise. So in my mind, yes, decisions like that have to be made. But there are some real realities here.
2: Well, I think that there is a danger It's a huge danger Because you're ending up with a bifurcated press You're either liberal or conservative And I can say all the usual things about Well, you have to be transparent And tell people where you're coming from And then whether you give your opinion or not Doesn't matter They can judge how to accept it But that means you're losing audience You're giving up audience What we really need are people who can be emotional I think it would have been ridiculous To be neutral in the face of that mob Descending on the Capitol. That was shocking. And I think Ira pointed out last week that the anchors showing horror and shock and surprise made for the emotional appeal that brought you audience. So you need emotion, but you also need to say, on the other side, we need people who can discuss and who are interested in people who don't think the same way. That's what's missing right now. NPR tries, for example, to give the opinion of people who still support Trump after all these, what we see as offenses, and he gets criticism for it from liberals. That's exactly, I think, what they should be doing. We do have to try to understand the other side and present them as, well, maybe they have a point or two. That's very well.
1: Hard. To do. Well, Rosemary, this radio station, WAMC, one of the most important in the country, has tried on a regular basis to interview Elise Stefanik, who is the Trump supporter, congresswoman from the North Country of New York. She won't come on. It isn't as if we're not trying. It isn't as if we are not trying its not that we do not want to give her her platform. It's that she's chicken to come on.
2: And she's not the only concern. who has stopped talking to the mainstream or legacy, whatever they call it now, to, to make us different from everybody else who just stop talking to us. They think they won't get a fair hearing. So whose fault is that? Is that ours because we Tell jump all over them? And I'm, as you know, guilty of that myself. Or is it theirs because... They've learned to use social media, and they don't really have to come. No politician really has to come to the media anymore. They go right straight, as Trump did, to Twitter and Facebook and other social media. Parlay, if that ever comes back. I think that's the story of the day, is what will happen with big tech in light of what's happened to Trump being pushed off.
1: And
0: I think you're right that that is a significant part of where things are going to change. What's going to happen now if tech begins to exercise its muscle? We have seen these major platforms de-platform Donald Trump as YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter and others have said that the president is barred because he is a threat to safety. He's a threat to order. So if what is going to happen here, will there be any consequences, will and in fact, will Democrats taking over Washington lead to a breakup of big tech? There is a lot of sentiment, I think, behind Elizabeth Warren's push and others to say these tech giants have become too big, we need to break them up to have more voices out there so that they're not dominating the conversation entirely. And there might be some support for that on the right now given the fact that Donald Trump has been the ineffective victim, as they would say, of big tech. That could have major implications for the future, right?
2: It isn't just on the right that there's sympathy for that. It's on the left, too, under the guise of antitrust, that they should be broken up because these are giant and extremely powerful organizations. So I see that in our future. Europe regulates big tech, has different rules on privacy and invasion of privacy, by the way, than the United States. But those two things are now connected because of the Trump controversy. I think we're going to see regulation and big changes in big tech.
0: Right. But the fact that these tech companies, they're not coordinating, but they certainly are taking some strength from each other because there's cover in their collaboration. They basically shut up the world's loudest man. Uh, That is a significant step. And you do have to say, if there is celebration for this on the left, consternation on the right. But there is even some question about the precedent that this establishes. Every time one of these giants wants to silence someone. Every time that a totalitarian government wants to silence someone, it can say, look, in the West, Donald Trump has this taken away from them. So you can see how this is going to create a lot of controversy. I think it's one of the emerging key issues of our time is going to be the power of big tech to give voice and take away voice and what government is going to do in response to that.
3: So Jack Dorsey, who's the head of Twitter, the night after the impeachment, he wrote a pretty extensive Twitter thread in which he acknowledged some of these problems. He stood by Twitter's decision to permanently ban President Trump, but he said it was a difficult decision, but that it was a unique set of circumstances. But again, he stepped up and even in a kind of a wishy-washy way, said that There were these concerns, but that it was a clear incitement to violence and to endangering people's lives. So I think big tech is aware of it, but I agree with Rosemary. We need to head more towards the European model in which there are at least some protections. Anybody who's ever visited a a European website, you have to acknowledge the cookies ahead of time. I'm not exactly sure how much protection that's giving me, but at least there's some acknowledgement that the reins need to be pulled back on these big tech horses
1: to which i would say cookie schmookies the fact of the matter the fact of the matter is that a lot of people love google and a lot of people love twitter and you know you're going to have to take on a substantial number i this is not an editorial endorsement by the way But you're going to have to take on a lot of people who like the fact that they can go on to Google and ask any question about what illness they have and why their neck is stiff. That's me. And learn to use it as an everyday device. And they're not going to want to see it screwed up. That's not what would be affected. What's affected is if you're
2: a teenager who's arrested for some drunken behavior, and that follows you around for the rest of your life because it's attached to your name. And anytime anybody Googles you, even if you're headed into a new business deal, that will show up. The American model is if it happened, hey, it's fair game to be reported. The European model is that you have the right to be forgotten. So that's what's really at the heart of the difference between the U.S. and data protection and Europe. But there's one other thing, too, and that is that Trump is an extraordinary, singular figure. And the way he ran the presidency, the way he's run his businesses is not typical. And isn't it always a bad idea to make law based on the extreme? Is he really the person that we should be using as the model? Was it really so terrible that big tech silenced him?
3: Right. I can say right now, Twitter is still interesting. Dorsey said they had removed 70,000 accounts, and a lot of those were duplicate bot counts that were run by one person and Mm -hmm. just generated a lot of content. Twitter is still inflammatory, but a lot less inflammatory. I I have always found it interesting, but nobody I know who's normal, who's not in the news business, follows Twitter. It seems to be a platform for journalists and politicians and entertainers.
0: Mm -hmm. And for law enforcement to use to track what's going on. One of the well-reported pieces in the New York Times notes how much law enforcement could have found out about the insurrection in the Capitol if they were following uh, what was going on visibly on social media. And now, with the bans that have been instituted by existing social media platforms, this has gone into the deep web, gone into encrypted sites, and it's going to be much more difficult to track these insurrectionists, the Proud Boys and others, because it's going further under. Underground, but still given that electronic tracking. That's not news media per se, but it is certainly one of the effects of the changes that we're seeing. And it's important for us to remember that we are still in the early days of the Internet age, and so we are just kind of getting our, our hands around this. I wonder if in breaking up big tech, though, we wouldn't be empowering local media, locally, or let's say, rather than geographically local, but smaller media, smaller digital sites, and so on, so that we might be stimulating an ecosystem for change uh, for multiple voices in the same way that breaking up AT&T. I covered that as a young reporter that I remember going to the first day of the trial before the federal judge Green in Washington, D.C., of when AT&T was broken up, that that powered the digital revolution. And I wonder if the same thing might happen if we take on big tech, and it might actually empower media around the country.
1: I would point out, Rex, in contradistinction to what you've just said, that, yeah, they cut out the bells, they cut them up, but ATT is still doing extremely well. And one other thing, and that is that the FBI has an awful lot of resources. Don't think they're not capable of figuring out who's using what to do nefarious things.
0: Well, they certainly failed with a capital insurrectionist. There's no understanding...
2: We don't even know that. It may well be that they knew and wanted it. We've not fully looked into collaboration between the rioters and the supposed
1: protectors of the Capitol. And the Justice Department, which runs the FBI.
0: Correct. Good work for uh, investigative journalists to pursue for congress to pursue uh, as well in the investigation of what went on and i'm afraid uh, we will see more opportunities for that. i want to go back to this question of neutrality or objectivity and so on and ask judy a question about this in particular because uh, we're looking at opinion journalism we're looking at more emotion let's say in the reporting but think about local reporting and what impact this has in our own newsrooms and think about this judy as you ran a local newsroom how a change in, let's say, the expectations of what reporters nationally might do might affect local newsrooms. We saw in the aftermath of Watergate a flush of growth of investigative reporting in local newsrooms. What happens if reporting gets hotter, if there's more emotion in reporting? Is that going to be aped in local newsrooms? What, what would happen in, in your old newsroom at the Gazette, for example, if reporting becomes less neutral, if objectivity is devalued?
3: you hear it all the time why don't reporters just give me the facts well if the reporters (laughs) just gave the facts about what happened on january sixth in washington they would say the president gave a speech some of his supporters marched down to the Capitol and walked in the building. I mean, that's as stripped down as you can get, but it's kind of the stenography version of the news. For a long time, we encouraged reporters to be so neutral that the news kind of was subsumed by it. You know, I would always write "he said" instead of "he conceded" or "he admitted" because that brings a certain amount of subjectivity to how you're quoting someone. I think that we need to do more than just stenography and. It some editors in every small newsroom try to teach the reporters there's a way of doing it without going too far and bringing opinion to it. But it's not just saying that the president gave a speech and his supporters marched down to the Capitol. You have to call a riot a riot when it's before your eyes, you have to call a murder a murder. Uh, you have to call a flood a flood. It's not just, the you know, water's going over the banks. Words matter, and sometimes the words have to be dramatic to convey what's actually happening because what's actually happening in the world is dramatic sometimes.
0: You know, the difficulty is that sometimes in less capable hands, often in beginning reporters, for example, aping the big guys, there are shortcuts to it. And you get reporters who pose as investigative reporters in their own minds and are sloppy in the reporting so that it becomes imbalanced. I only worry about that. I think that it's entirely appropriate. But you worry, I think, that the introduction, the loosening of the standards for Straightforward storytelling will further alienate entire segments of your readership and render you a voice for only one part of a debate, uh, for one side of a community. And that's just, you know, we always have to walk that fine line.
3: It's true. And then the other thing we need to be very mindful of is the need for editors in the newsroom. I think nowadays there's just such a focus on content creators or just get that video out. When you need to have editors, every newspaper, every news organization needs to invest in editors to help guide the reporters on the streets because it's a team effort. And the judgment, the wisdom that an editor brings can't be overlooked. It's not just a matter of slapping it on a page or posting it on the website. Editors bring something to the equation that is hidden often to the general public, but it's immensely valuable.
2: Hear, hear. The big problem after Watergate was that local reporter's it wasn't that they weren't factually reporting. It was a matter of tone and scope. They would treat a mayor who had uh, lied on a travel expense form as if he were the president subverting the Constitution. And that's a matter of tone, of attitude. And that comes from editing. It does not come from saying you can only objectively tell a story and you see these problems because we want to tell good stories that bring in readers. So you see these problems even at the New York Times, where they're not dealing with just beginning reporters. They they made terrible mistakes because they wanted a great story. And so they give up the idea of wait, wait, is there balance in the story? Is do we really have to put two whole pages on this? And it's very difficult. And of course we're asking. For this at a time when newsrooms are filled with beginners, because that's all we can afford to pay. Those are the only ones who will take our jobs. And because we're losing editors as they leave, you get experience and you make more money, and so you leave the newsroom. So resources are really tight for exactly the sort of thing we're saying is needed.
1: And as we've always said, again and again and again, we need more. Can't have it. Newspapers are failing on so many levels, so we keep beating ourselves about the head, but in the end, there's got to be a different funding mechanism to make newspapers work. Rex has, on some occasions, talked about maybe some of the big companies forking over some of their money to keep local newspapers going, an idea which I find very appealing as long as these newspapers all become not for profit and that ain't going to happen. I,
0: I think the future of local news may well be not-for-profit. That would be kind of a cool thing. And actually, it's one of the reasons why public radio, I think, has an opportunity to grow at this in this environment and see if it can diversify and, and try to serve some of these local communities as the local for-profit
1: enterprises fail. Some yes and some no. Washington, D.C. is having all kinds of problems. It's a major public radio station, and they can't seem to get it together. W.A.M.C., on the other hand, where we're producing this program right now, has never seen support like we are seeing now. So it's a mixed bag. It depends on what the public radio stations are doing.
0: Well, and the hard part, of course, is, you know, WAMC is a regional resource. It's, it's big, as you noted earlier. And what is needed is attention in these local communities. There are just too many. There are hundreds and hundreds of communities in the WAMC listening area that used to have their own weekly newspapers. And some of them are failing. Many of them are failing. And keeping them going is a major effort, Right.
2: To expand this beyond media, you need an audience who appreciates what a major new media outlet can do. And we get back to civics in schools, which we've also discussed here. My son teaches it in Virginia. And I asked him what what he's been telling his kids in this past week since January 6th. And he said, actually, he's filtering it, that he began talking about Waco in one class, this is middle school, as a way to get into what happened in Washington and got complaints from parents about talking to their children about violence so they're not going to get civics education they're not going to appreciate a press who tells them the story whether it's with emotion or not whether it's fully funded or not we have some basic societal issues here it's not just media
0: remarkable and terrifying notion, but you're right. If there uh, isn't an audience that recognizes great reporting, great reporting cannot survive, which is why we've talked a lot here about media literacy, uh, teaching news media literacy, teaching uh, young people how to recognize real journalism. And and it's uh, all the more difficult because of the ways in which these fraudulent players, those who uh, present what is not news as though it is, the way in which they're able to ape real reporting and make it look like this is the world in which we live when it's not. In fact, that's difficult.
3: You know, after spending mm-hmm. way too much time on social media in recent days, I even think we need literacy literacy. People people cannot read. They, they they don't want to read. They definitely can't spell. They definitely can't punctuate, and they tend to even if there's a story posted on social media, they're not even reading the story. I and mean, I know Twitter is trying to encourage people to read the stories, but you can tell people are not reading the story. They're reacting to a headline, and they're spouting yeah. off whatever they heard on television about it. Uh, yeah, and they're. Not investing the mental energy in reading. People aren't reading like they should. Some people are, but the people that I'm interacting with on social media, they are definitely not. You're here again, uh, Judy. You're on fire today.
0: (laughs) On that glum note, I'm afraid we're going to have to let it go because we've reached the end of our time. So sorry about that. But Rosemary Armeo and Judy Patrick and the venerable Alan Shartok, did I say that before?
3: Hmm.
0: I got in trouble for it. Right you are. (laughs) We do thank our listeners. I think that's a clerical term. I think clergy are considered venerable uh, when they're at a high-ranking position, Alan. Yeah, Sure. Yeah, sure. That's all. I'm Rex Smith of the Times Union. Thanks to our producer, David Gustina, and to you folks for listening to us this week once again on The Media Project.
1: advertising, get those
0: readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers to freedom of the press.